we called her Mother Hudges. Ain't she was Aunt Jenny. Ain't Jenny to them. But she was Mother Hudges to the church people. Welcome to Property Lines. I'm your host, Will Bradshaw, and today we're talking with Angela Kyle about her family's multi-generational connection to Carpenter's Creek in Pensacola, Florida. Angela's great-great-grandfather, Fred Hudgens, bought 10 acres of land adjacent to the creek in 1901. That land was inherited by his wife, Jenny Hudgens, and two acres of that land, the part that is not adjacent to Carpenter's Creek, remains in the family today. The other eight acres, which included the creek access, were sold by her great-grandparents, Sim and Minnie Dawson, in 1956, seven years after Jenny's death. After the sale, that land was redeveloped as an all-white subdivision in an area that came to be known as Spring Hill. According to a 1959 letter to the editor, prominent Pensacola businessman, town leader, and member of the KKK, T.T. Wentworth, promised continued public access to Carpenter's Creek when it was sold. The creek had come to be used for baptisms for black churches on Sundays and recreation by both blacks and whites throughout the week. The access was especially important for the black community because their options for recreation and religious gathering places were severely constrained by segregation. Mr. Wentworth reneged on that promise, and Carpenter's Creek was cut off from all Pensacolans, but especially its black community, for the last 66 years. But thanks to the 2012 Restore Act, and the concerted efforts of a number of local residents, including Angela and her mother, Carpenter's Creek is enjoying something of a renewal. Angela has joined us today to share this story, her family's story, of Carpenter's Creek, an unequal opportunity in America. My name is Angela Kyle. I'm a native of Pensacola, Florida, and I am the direct descendant of a woman named Jenny Hudgens. Jenny is legendary in my hometown, because of her association with an iconic waterway called Carpenter's Creek, specifically because of a swimming hole that was situated on the edge of her property, which was a 10-acre tract of property in an area that in the early 1900s was known as kind of East Brent. In 1901, 10 acres was sold to my great-great-grandfather, Fred Hudgens, Jenny's husband. Jenny was born in Pea Road, Alabama in 1865, and so she migrated to the Florida Panhandle sometime in the late 1890s. She had one daughter named Minnie, who was my great-grandmother, and Minnie was married to a man named Sim Dawson. And Sim was the illegitimate son of a Confederate general uh, named William Dawson and a formerly enslaved uh, woman named Annie Hatcher. In 1922, Jenny Hudgens co-founded a church that they called the New Hope Baptist Church in an area of Pensacola called Golding, uh, this, this adjacent to or kind of contiguous to Brent. And the church was originally founded as just an outdoor place of worship. They had, didn't have the money to actually erect a structure. And so they built uh, what's known as a brush arbor. So a kind of pop-up pavilion of, you know, kind of wooden posts and palmetto leaves overhead. And they held the worship services outside. And because of Jenny's ownership of her land and the adjacency to the creek, 
they, first Sunday of every month, they baptized New Hope church members at Carpenter's Creek. The creek was known from, from that standpoint as, you know, this kind of ritual gathering place during the week and on other days of the month, it was a less sacred, but to more mundane and less sacred purposes in that Jenny and Minnie would gather the clothes of their white neighbors and gather the laundry of their white neighbors and they would do the laundry in the creek. So it was, you know, this kind of source of commerce for, for them, you know, as well as this like sacred gathering space. In the 1930 census documentation, where it references Jenny and Minnie, their occupations are listed as laundresses. At the time, this part of Pensacola was extremely rural. Now it is kind of the center of the city and, and one of the most densely populated from a residential and also commercial standpoint. But at the time, it was incredibly rural, and they were the only ones there identified as Negro. For white members of the community, the creek was more a destination for recreation. My mother, who is now in her 80s, but retired over many years as a, as a teacher, as an educator, and is also an author and a local historian, has written extensively about her recollections of the creek growing up and has written and, and, and very richly kind of juxtaposed these images of the use of the creek for baptisms with the white youngsters who would just come and swim and kind of cavort and in general, just use it as a place for recreation. So, you know, just these, these kind of interesting juxtapositions of the relevance of this body of water for our family and then for the surrounding residents and surrounding population. This particular bend in the creek had a very deep pool. While the rest of the creek was navigable, and I heard stories of people walking the creek in lots of places, it was quite shallow. But this particular bend in the creek on the edge of their property had this very deep pool, which made it a popular swimming destination. You could actually go and kind of dive and, you know, jump out of the trees and dive there. But then also there was just apparently a bank that went down to the edge of the creek. And that was described to me by a former church member, a woman named Mabel Brown, now in her mid nineties. She was actually baptized in the creek. And as far as we know, she's the oldest living New Hope church member. I interviewed her in March in the run up to the church's centennial anniversary. She kind of shared this story and painted a very kind of vivid description of church members kind of gathered on the bank and then, and, you know, the choir gathered and singing and then the preacher and deacons out in the water and the new church member kind of coming out into the water to be baptized. So I think it, it had quite a bit to do with the actual physical, like the, the, I guess the topography or the, you know, the geology of the, you know, of the creek itself in relation to why it was such a popular destination. I might have been between 15 or 16. The girl that was the secretary of the Sunday school, when she wouldn't be there, I always would run up and ask Deacon Johnson if I could catch the minutes. And so he said, well, baby, he said, you got to first join the church and be baptized before you can, you know, have a job working in the church. And so I went on and later the Lord called me and I was baptized down in Hudgens Creek. You could just feel it, you know, 
all the folks were they would be shouting and going on just about the whole congregation would be there and the deacon would lead you to the uh, preacher that's gonna gonna dip you motherhood and she always prepared and had towels and whatnot and seen to the ones that's gonna be baptized being dressed properly for the baptizing. Mine was a white outing guy with long sleeves and come down to my ankle. We wore a cap on your head and then had a towel around your head. Tinny passed away in 1949, and then her daughter and son-in-law, Minnie and Sim, they held on to the property until 1956. And in 1956, they sold eight of the acres to a development company called Dolly Madison. In 1959, this newspaper article that a local researcher and historian found and shared with us talks about how the development company Dolly Madison basically went to develop an all-white subdivision from those eight acres. And so that area became known as Spring Hill. What the article documents is really, it's quite specific to the loss of the creek, both as a destination for the churches, and it actually specifically referenced several churches. So it seems like over time, beyond just New Hope, other Black churches used the creek as a gathering spot and a baptism spot because building a church with an actual baptismal pool, not as feasible then as, as today, right? So it seemed like over the decades, several churches were using it, but also Black residents were also using it as recreation. And so this 1959 piece really speaks to that and the kind of the loss of, and the fact that, you know, Pensacola, which is on a peninsula and surrounded on three sides by water is very, very known for, you know, as a coastal destination and access to water. But obviously the public beaches, the coastal beaches along the Gulf of Mexico, like all of those were segregated. There was a beach on the edge of downtown named Bruce Beach, um, also segregated. This article kind of really laments the fact that there were so few destinations for recreation for the African-American community. It also ties the future use of the land or the trajectory of it being developed as a subdivision to T.T. Wentworth, who's in Pensacola, was the tax assessor in the 20s, and then ultimately went on to generate a significant amount of wealth from his real estate activities. But the article references the fact that Wentworth was the one who promised the Black community the ongoing use of the creek. So even after my great-grandparents sold it, they were promised and the Black community was promised like, oh, you'll still be able to use the creek. But that it was his kind of reneging on that commitment and then ultimately the development of this all-white subdivision that was the kind of, I guess, kind of sellout and, and, and really the, the real loss for the Black community at that time. The Restore Act simply says that 80% of the penalty paid by BP should be directed to the Gulf Coast for restoration. The Restore Act was passed in 2012 and diverted most of the penalties from the Deepwater Horizon oil spill to the recovery of ecosystems and communities in the U.S. Gulf Coast, which was the most heavily affected area from the spill. That legislation has created new opportunities for reinvestment in Carpenter's Creek. So funding from Restore 
commissioned environmental engineers and landscape team to look at a three-year study on of, of how to restore this creek and how to really look uh, broadly at opportunities to repair the environmental damage, but also to bring it back into actual use and, and make it publicly accessible. Also to daylight some of the history and think about ways to storytell and bring some of the cultural and, and social aspects of the history into more public and current awareness. It was January of 2020 when uh, that study was kicked off in Pensacola, and it really did coincide with COVID and at the time in which I personally then uh, started spending a significant amount of time in Pensacola. I became quite aware of what was happening and then over the last year have gotten extremely involved, really wanting to make sure that the history, the social and, and cultural significance of the landscape is brought to the fore and is just brought much more into the kind of the mainstream awareness. Because the the planning study encompassed, you know, the entire stretch of the waterway, there was really a risk that in any kind of conversation about public amenities or thinking about how to bring recreation or any type of use like that back, there was really a risk that more vocal residents who own property along the creek that's you know, probably already quite valuable, that those voices would really dominate the discourse and uh, the demand for, you know, w what would happen and where it would happen. And so I really decided that it was, you know, kind of a, an obligation to really bring this, you know, the story of, of, uh, of my family, but also the Black community of Pensacola and their relationship to the creek to light. As I've said, the creek exists in, in the kind of colloquial and collective memory of Pensacola as this kind of like Aunt Jenny's hole, this swimming hole that was popular and, and white residents of a certain age uh, remember it and kind of talk about it with a, with a degree of nostalgia. But a lot of the nuance of the church history, the baptisms, the use of the creek for commerce, like a lot of that has essentially been erased. And so over the last 12 months, through collaboration with the Cultural Landscape Foundation out of D.C. and more recently with some support from the Trust for Public Lands, Florida stakeholders, we've really been able to bring that narrative to the fore, um, get it into the local media, and um, hopefully we'll, we'll also start to get it into the, the national media and mainstream as well. the commercial and kind of institutional development in this part of Pensacola is probably the densest in the city. Only in the last like 10 years or so has downtown really been kind of revitalized. This part of Pensacola, East Brent, and an area adjacent called kind of Cordova and Cordova Park is really the heart of major healthcare institutions, educational institutions, the junior college, two hospitals, major retail and, and the airport. So this neighborhood still, you know, sits in proximity to all these assets, but the development really obliterated the creek. 
It's a five-mile waterway that flows into a, a larger body of water called Bayou Tahar and then ultimately into Pensacola Bay. The kind of the narrow part of it that flows through the majority of Pensacola was just developed over. Even for me growing up, there was no access. Some of my peers, like mostly boys, would talk about like cutting through the woods or through somebody's backyard, right? So it is still accessible, but it's not really publicly accessible to get there. It's passing through private property. It was also channelized from an ecological perspective. It's pretty severely degraded. There's a Facebook group, which is, you might be from Pensacola if you remember these things. In searching that group from, you know, just posts from the last eight or nine years, there are a number that relate to the swimming hole. By the white residents in the community, Jenny was known affectionately uh, with a very diminutive nickname of Aunt Jenny. It's still known to this day as Aunt Jenny's, like Aunt Jenny's hole. Even in this Facebook group, it's just these descriptions of like how clear the water was, how cold it was, the water moccasins, this, you know, the nature, the snakes. I'd say probably people in their 70s who actually, you know, who, who would have like a recollection going back to being kids during this time. These very kind of vivid and visual memories really like live on because of the way that the creek traverses Pensacola, there are a couple of spots where there are overlooks where you can see the creek. Typically you're driving, right? Like this is not, Pensacola is not a particularly pedestrian friendly city with the exception of, of downtown. So the majority of it is not that accessible, but through a quite densely wooded areas off of 9th Avenue, um, Bayou Boulevard, which are main thoroughfares through uh, central Pensacola, you can basically find overlooks and kind of access points. It's quite narrow, I'd say maybe 20 or so feet wide and kind of runs through very lushly forested woodlands. It's very shallow. And from the engineering perspective, what the consulting team has been investigating and looking at is, is more around like the potential restoration of, of the ecology. And so even with the swimming hole location, investigating the opportunity to kind of recreate that pool to the depth that it used to be, which is, we believe, probably like over six feet. Because we've heard accounts of people who are, who are you know, who are like six feet tall talking about swimming there and it being over their heads, right? I think the opportunity is really to restore it and provide access in a way that allows people to feel like they're coming across something that is a discovery. That's where the opportunity will be to really have this be a natural amenity that really feels like you are in nature, right? It's it's not not like there aren't there aren't, you know, parks and green spaces in this part of Pensacola. There are certainly parks and green spaces, but the ability to encounter this type of nature and the kind of wildness of it, it's a pretty magical opportunity that could just present this kind of real escape from the day-to-day -day as you're kind of on this super busy corridor and there's Target and fast food and, and you're, you know, in proximity to the hospital and the junior college, but to be able to go down a path and walk along an elevated walkway and really feel like you are escaping into the woods. I think that's where the real, you know, kind of magic potential exists. 
the conversation is now beyond just like a marker and interpretive signage, right? It's it's really thinking about like, how do we lean into the history and the narrative and these layers of the sacred and the secular? And that then starts to open up really fascinating potential. Is it about public art that could tell that story? Is it about just a different type of experience? that could bring this destination to life. Also because of the adjacency to businesses and to some of the healthcare institutions, the fact that there could be public-private partnerships and funding that would unlock different dimensions of possibility because of the nexus of the location. And I think the moment that we're in the, the zeitgeist around understanding the need to bring these kind of spatial narratives of underrepresented people bring them into the forefront and put a spotlight on them and do it in a way that's inclusive. Angela and her family are not just connected to this land through their long stewardship of it and the nostalgic memories of septuagenarians who grew up in Pensacola. There's a deeper loss that comes from the murder of her great-uncle William Dawson, in 1933, in the woods close to the family's land and Carpenter's Creek. We have not discussed or explored that event in the conversation today, but it is important to know in order to understand part of how Angela and her mother think about the creek and the woods around it. thing that I will say to kind of bring it back to our family's history and experience, I mean, the thing that I'll say in thinking about what this could be and who it's for and how to make it accessible, you know, and inclusive for everybody is there's really something powerful about safety and about how do you create this space and, and make this this place feel like anyone is safe there, right? Like from a, a four-year-old to an elderly person, like going for a walk, right? And I do think that you have to then also address like this issue of race because, you know, to this day, my mother, I think, embedded in our family is this like kind of trauma of what happened to my great uncle. And to this day, my mother will avoid densely wooded places. She will avoid places that people would historically go or typically go and say like, oh, I'm going to like escape to nature, right? Like she will avoid them, right? Because there is that history and that, and that kind of trauma. And I think that for the moment that we're in currently and, and you know, today, like, how do we really think about like addressing that and and what the experience of this place needs to be and and do so that everyone feels safe and everyone feels it's accessible to them Thank you for listening to Property Lines. I'm your host, Will Bradshaw. My guest today was Miss Angela Kyle, fifth-generation resident of Pensacola, Florida, and fifth-generation steward of a swimming destination in Carpenter's Creek that has come to be known as Aunt Jenny's Hole. Aunt Jenny is her great-great-grandmother and the person most connected to this bend in the creek that over the years has been used for baptisms, recreation, and commerce, but has been cut off from Pensacola residents since a local official reneged on his promise to keep it accessible to the black community in 1956. 
Now Angela and a number of other local residents are working to restore the creek in a way that honors this history and makes it accessible to Pensacola residents for generations to come. Property Lines was made possible by the support of the Tulane School of Architecture's Sustainable Real Estate Development Program, a generous gift from Cassius Peeler and Libra Legrone, and by the Reimagine Fund. The Reimagine Fund matches real estate developers with groups of their existing supporters who are able to purchase an interest in real estate projects using money they were already going to pay in income taxes. Learn more at reimaginefundthenumber1.com. Production and sound editing are provided by George Engmeyer. Please join us next time on Property Lines as we continue to discuss real estate and unequal opportunity in America. The house I live in A plot of earth, a street The grocer and the butcher And the people that I meet The children in the playground The faces that I see All races, all religions That's America to me